Chapter Fifteen, Part Three of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingston: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Fifteen, Part Three: Homeward Bound. Livingston's last words, the final farewell. I am not going to inflict on the reader a repetition of our march back, except to record certain incidents which occurred to us as we journeyed to the coast. March 17th. We came to the Koala River. The first rain of the Masika season fell on this day. I shall be mildewed before I reach the coast. Last year's Masika began at Bogamayo, March 23rd, and ended the 30th of April. The next day I halted the expedition at Western Tura, on the Unyamwezi frontier, and on the 20th arrived at Eastern Tura, when soon after we heard a loud report of a gun, and Susi and Hamoida, the doctor's servants, with Uredi and another of my men, appeared with a letter for Sir Thomas Maclear, observatory cape of good hope and one for myself which read as follows quihara march fifteenth eighteen seventy two dear stanley if you can telegraph on your arrival in london be particular please to say how sir roderick is you put the matter exactly yesterday when you said that i was not yet satisfied about the sources but as soon as i shall be satisfied i shall return and give satisfactory reasons fit for other people this is just as it stands. I wish I could give you a better word than the Scotch one to put a stout heart to a stay a steep ascent, for you will do that, and I am thankful that, before going away, the fever had changed into the intermittent or safe form. I would not have let you go, but with great concern, had you still been troubled with the continued type. I feel comfortable in commending you to the guardianship of the good Lord and Father of all. I am gratefully yours, David Livingston. I have worked as hard as I could copying observations made in one line of the march from Kabir back again to Kazembe, and on to Lake Baguelo, and I am quite tired out. My large figures fill six sheets of foolscap, and many a day will elapse ere I take to copying again. I did my duty when ill at Ujiji in 1869, and am not to blame, though they grope a little in the dark at home. Some Arab letters have come, and I forward them to you. D. L. March 16, 1872. P.S. I have written a note this morning to Mr. Murray, 50 Albemarle Street, the publisher, to help you if necessary, in sending the journal by book post or otherwise to Agnes. If you call on him, you will find him a frank gentleman. A pleasant journey to you. David Livingston to Henry M. Stanley, Esquire, wherever he may be found. Several Wangwana arrived at Turad to join our returning expedition, as they were afraid to pass through Ugogo by themselves. Others were reported coming, but as all were sufficiently warned at Unyanyembe that the departure of the caravan would take place positively on the 14th, I was not disposed to wait longer. As we were leaving Tura on the 21st, Susi and Hamoida were sent back to the doctor with last words from me while we continued our march to the Nuangwalo River. 
Two days afterwards we arrived before the villages of Ngaresa, into which the head of the caravan attempted to enter, but the angry Wakimbu forcibly ejected them. On the 24th we encamped in the jungle, in what is called the Tongoni, or clearing. This region was, at one period, in a most flourishing state. The soil is exceedingly fertile, the timber is large, and would be valuable near the coast. And, what is highly appreciated in Africa, there is an abundance of water. We camped near a smooth, broad hump of cyanite, at one end of which rose, upright and grand, a massive square rock, which towered above several small trees in the vicinity. At the other end stood up another singular rock, which was loosened at the base. The members of the expedition made use of the great sheet of rock to grind their grain, a common proceeding in these lands where villages are not near, or when the people are hostile. On the 27th of March we entered Kiwya. At dawn, when leaving the Badaburu River, the solemn warning had been given that we were about to enter Ugogo, and as we left Kaniyaga village, with trumpet-like blasts of the guide's horn, we filed into the depths of an expanse of rustling Indian corn. The ears were ripe enough for parching and roasting, and thus was one anxiety dispelled by its appearance, for generally in early March caravans suffer from famine, which overtakes both natives and strangers. We soon entered the gum-tree districts, and we knew we were in Ugogo. The forests of this country are chiefly composed of the gum and thorn spices, mimosa and tamarisk, with often a variety of wild fruit trees. The grapes were plentiful, though they were not quite ripe, and there was also a round reddish fruit with the sweetness of the sultana grape, with leaves like a gooseberry bush. There was another about the size of an apricot, which was excessively bitter. Emerging from the tangled thorn jungle, the extensive settlements of Kiwya came into view, and to the east of the chief's village we found a camping place under the shade of a group of colossal boabab. We had barely encamped when we heard the booming, bellowing war-horns sounding everywhere, and we espied messengers darting swiftly in every direction giving the alarm of war. When first informed that the horns were calling the people to arm themselves and prepare for war, I half suspected that an attack was about to be made on the expedition. But the words, Yuguru, Waguru, thief, thieves, bandied about, declared the cause. Makandoku, the chief of the populous district two days to the northeast, where we experienced some excitement when westward bound, was marching to attack the young Mateme, Kuya, and Kuya's soldiers were called to the fight. The men rushed to their villages, and in short time we saw them arrayed in full fighting costume. Feathers of the ostrich and the eagle waved over their fronts, or the mane of the zebra surrounded their heads. Their knees and ankles were hung with little bells, joho robes floated behind from their necks, spears, aseges, knob-sticks, and bows were flourished over their heads, or held in their right hands as if ready for hurling. On each flank of a large body which issued from the principal village, and which came at a uniform swinging double-quick, the ankle and knee-bells all chiming in admirable unison, were a cloud of skirmishers, consisting of the most enthusiastic, who exercised themselves in mimic wars they sped along. 
Column after column, companies and groups from every village hurried on past our camp until probably there were nearly a thousand soldiers gone to the war. This scene gave me a better idea than anything else of the weakness of even the largest caravans which traveled between Zanzibar and Unyanyembe. At night the warriors returned from the forest. The alarm proved to be without foundation. At first it was generally reported that the invaders were Wahehe, or the Wadi Rigo, as that tribe are scornfully called from their thieving propensities. The Wahehe frequently make a foray upon the fat cattle of Ugogo. They travel from their own country in the southeast, and advance through the jungle, and when about to approach the herds, stoop down, covering their bodies with their shields of bullhide. Having arrived between the cattle and the herdsmen, they suddenly rise up and begin to switch the cattle heartily, and, having started them off into the jungle in the care of the men already detailed for the work, they turn about and plant their shields before them to fight the aroused shepherds. On the 30th we arrived at Cones, which is remarkable for the mighty globes of foliage which the giant sycamores and boabobs put forth above the plain. The chief of Cones boasts of four Thames, out of which he could muster in the aggregate fifty armed men. Yet this fellow, instigated by the Wanyamwezi residents, prepared to resist our advance, because I only sent him three doti, twelve yards of cloth, as hunga. We were halted, waiting the return of a few friendly Wagogo travellers who had joined us, and who were asked to assist Bombay in the negotiation of the tribute, when the Wagogo returned to us at breathless speed, and shouted out to me, "'Why do you halt here? Do you wish to die?' These pagans will not take the tribute, but they boast that they will eat up all your cloth. The renegade Wanyamwenze, who had married into a Wagogo families, were always our bane in this country. As the chief of Cones came up, I ordered the men to load their guns, and I loaded my own ostentatiously in his presence, and then strode up to him and asked if he had come to take the cloth by force, or if he were going to accept quietly what I would give him. As the Manyamwese who caused this show of hostilities was beginning to speak, I caught him by the throat, and threatened to make his nose flatter if he attempted to speak again in my presence, and to shoot him first if we should be forced to fight. The rascal was then pushed away into the rear. The chief, who was highly amused with this proceeding, laughed loudly at the discomfiture of the parasite, and in a short time he and I had settled the tribute to our mutual satisfaction, and we parted great friends. The expedition arrived at Sansa that night. On the 31st we came to Kanyenyi, to the great Matemi, Magomba's whose son and heir is Matundu Magonda. As we passed by the tembe of the great sultan, the Masgira, or chief counsellor, a pleasant grey-haired man, was at work making a thorn fence around a patch of young corn. He greeted the caravan with a sonorous yambo, and putting himself at its head, he led the way to our camp. When introduced to me, he was very cordial in his manner. He was offered a kitty stool, and began to talk very affably. He remembered my predecessors, Burton, Speck, and Grant, very well, declared me to be much younger than any of them, and recollecting that one of the white men used to drink ass's milk, Burton, offered to procure me some. The way I drank it seemed to give him very great satisfaction. 
His son, Unemapokera, was a tall man of thirty or thereabouts, and he conceived a great friendship for me, and promised that the tribute should be very light, and that he would send a man to show me the way to Miemi, which was a village on the frontier of Kenyenyi, by which I would be enabled to avoid the rapacious Kisawa, who was in the habit of enforcing large tribute from caravans. With the aid of Unemapokera and his father, we contrived to be mulsted very lightly, for we only paid ten doti, while Burton was compelled to pay sixty doti, or two hundred and forty yards of cloth. On the first of April, rising early, we reached Miyeme after a four hours' march, then plunged into the jungle, and, about two p.m., arrived at a large ziwa, or pond, situate in the middle of a jungle, and on the next day, at ten a.m., reached the fields of Mapanga. We were passing the village of Mapanga to a resting-place beyond the village, where we might breakfast and settle the hunga, when a lad rushed forward to meet us, and asked us where we were going. Having received a reply that we were going to a camping-place, he hastened on ahead, and presently we heard him talking to some men in a field on our right. In the meantime we had found a comfortable shady place, and had come to a halt. The men were reclining on the ground, or standing up near their respective loads. Bombay was about opening a bale, when we heard a great rush of men, and loud shouts, and, immediately after, out rushed from the jungle, near by, a body of forty or fifty armed men, who held their spears above their heads, or were about to draw their bows, with a chief at their head, all uttering such howls of rage as only savages can, which sounded like a long-drawn hot huh, hot uh uh which meant, unmistakably, you will, will you, no, you will not, at once determined, defiant, and menacing. I had suspected that the voices I heard boded no good to us, and I had accordingly prepared my weapons and cartridges. Verily, what a fine chance for adventure this was! One spear flung at us, or one shot fired into this miniatory mob of savages, and the opposing bands had been plunged into a fatal conflict. There would have been no order of battle, no pomp of war, but a murderous strife, a quick firing of breech-loaders and volleys from flintlock muskets, mixed with the flying of spears and twanging of bows, the cowardly running away at once, pursued by yelping savages, and who knows how it all would have terminated. Forty spears against forty guns, but how many guns would not have decamped? perhaps all, and I should have been left with my boy gun-bearers to have my jugular deliberately severed, or to be decapitated, leaving my head to adorn a tall pole in the centre of a Kigogo village, like poor Monsieur Mazin's at Digla Mohara in Uzaremo. Happy end of an expedition, and the doctor's journal lost forever, the fruits of six years' labour. But in this land it will not do to fight unless driven to the very last extremity. No belligerent Mungo Park can be successful in Ugogo unless he has a sufficient force of men with him. With five hundred Europeans one could traverse Africa from north to south by tact, and the moral effect that such a force would inspire. Very little fighting would be required. Without rising from the bale on which I was seated, I requested the Kiragozo to demand an explanation of their furious hubbub and threatening aspect, if they were coming to rob us. No, said the chief, we do not want to stop the road, or to rob you, but we want the tribute. But don't you see us halted, and the bale open to send it to you? 
We have come so far from your village that after the tribute is settled we can proceed on our way, as the day is yet young. The chief burst into a loud laugh, and was joined by ourselves. He evidently felt ashamed of his conduct, for he voluntarily offered the explanation, that as he and his men were cutting wood to make a new fence for his village, a lad came up to him, and said that a caravan of Wangwana were passing through the country, without stopping to explain who they were. We were very soon good friends. He begged of me to make rain for him, as his crops were suffering, and no rain had fallen for months. I told him that, though white people were very great and clever people, much superior to the Arabs, yet we could not make rain. Though very much disappointed, he did not doubt my statement, and after receiving his honga, which was very light, he permitted us to go on our way, and even accompanied us some distance to show us the road. At three p.m. we entered a thorny jungle, and by five p.m. we had arrived at Mahalata, a district lorded over by the chief Nyamzaga. A Magogo, of whom I made a friend, proved very staunch. He belonged to Maloa, a country to the south-southeast and south of Kulabi, and was active in promoting my interests by settling the tribute, with the assistance of Bombay, for me. When, on the next day, we passed through Kulabi on our way to Mivumi, and the Wagogo were about to stop us for the Hanga, he took upon himself the task of relieving us from further toll, by stating we were from Yogogo or Kenyeni. The chief simply nodded his head, and we passed on. It seems that the Wagogo do not exact blackmail of those caravans who intend only to trade in their own country, or have no intention of passing beyond their own frontier. Leaving Kulabi were traversed a naked, red, loamy plain, over which the wind from the heights of Usagara, now rising a bluish-black jumble of mountains on our front, howled most fearfully. With clear, keen, incisive force, the terrible blasts seemed to penetrate through and through our bodies, as though we were but filmy gauze. Manfully batting against this mildly peppo storm, we passed through Mukamwaza, and, crossing a broad sandy bed of stream, we entered the territory of Mavumi, the last tribute-levying chief of Ugogo. The 4th of April, after sending Bombay and my friendly Magogo with eight doti, or thirty-two yards of cloth, as a farewell tribute to the Sultan, we struck off through the jungle, and in five hours we were on the borders of the wilderness of Maranga Makali, the hard, bitter, or brackish water. From our camp I dispatched three men to Zanzibar with letters to the American consul, and telegraphic despatches for the herald, with a request to the consul that he would send the men back with a small case or two containing such luxuries as hungry, worn-out, and mildewed men would appreciate. The three messengers were charged not to halt for anything, rain or no rain, river or inundation, as if, if they did not hurry up, we should catch them before they reached the coast. With a fervent, inshallah, bana, they departed. On the fifth, with a loud, vigorous, cheery hurrah, we plunged into the depths of the wilderness, which, with its eternal silence and solitude, was far preferable to the jarring, inharmonious discord of the villages of the Wagogo. For nine hours we held on our way, starting with noisy shouts the fierce rhinoceros, the timid quagga, and the herds of antelopes which crowd the jungles of this broad salina. On the seventh, amid a pelting rain, we entered Mpwapwa, where my Scotch assistant Farquhar died. 
we had performed the extraordinary march of three hundred and thirty-eight English miles from the fourteenth of March to the seventh of April, or within twenty-four days, inclusive of halts, which was a little over fourteen miles a day. Lucoli, the chief of Mwapwapwa, with whom I left Farquhar, gave the following account of the death of the latter. The white man seemed to be improving after you left him, until the fifth day, when attempting to rise and walk out of his tent, he fell back. From that minute he got worse and worse, and in the afternoon he died, like one going to sleep. His legs and abdomen had swollen considerably, and something, I think, broke within him when he fell, for he cried out like a man who was very much hurt, and his servant said, The master says he is dying. We had him carried out under a large tree, and after covering him with leaves there left him. His servant took possession of his things, his rifle, clothes, and blanket, and moved off to the tembe of a Minyamweze, near Kisokwa, where he lived for three months, when he also died. Before he died he sold his master's rifle to an Arab going to Unyanyembe for ten doti, forty yards of cloth. That is all I know about it. He subsequently showed me the hollow into which the dead body of Farquhar was thrown, but I could not find a vestige of his bones, though we looked sharply about that we might make a decent grave for them. Before we left Unyanyembe fifty men were employed two days carrying rocks, with which I built up a solid, enduring pile around Shaw's grave, eight feet long and five feet broad, which Dr. Livingston said would last hundreds of years as the grave of the first white man who died in Unyanyembe. But though we could not discover any remains of the unfortunate Farquhar, we collected a large quantity of stones, and managed to raise a mound near the banks of the stream to commemorate the spot where his body was laid. It was not until we had entered the valley of the Mukandakwa River that we experienced anything like privation or hardship from the Masika. Here the torrents thundered and roared. The river was a mighty brown flood, sweeping downward with an almost resistless flow. The banks were brimful, and broad mullahs were full of water, and the fields were inundated, and still the rain came surging down in a shower that warned us of what we might expect during our transit of the sea-coast region. Still we urged our steps onward like men to whom every moment was precious, as if a deluge was overtaking us. Three times we crossed this awful flood at the fords by means of ropes tied to trees from bank to bank and arrived at Ketatamare on the eleventh, a most miserable, most woe-begone set of human beings, and camped on a hill opposite Mount Quibue, which rose on the right of the river, one of the tallest peaks of the range. End of chapter 15, part 3